If your download does not start in the next 15 seconds, click this hyperlink. Oh, there it is. Sorry, it opened the link in Edge and their download <laughs> in a different <laughs> spot. I don't use Edge all that much, which honestly, I should. It's way faster than Chrome these days. Uh, I'm all in on the Firefox. I kind of like that, you know, Mozilla, open source, more secure thing. Right on. Time's up. Start the game already! Let's do this! I'm ready. I'm not ready. Welcome, dear listener, to the QQ Cast. Today's Thursday, December 9th, 2021. We're your host, Tom DePont, Zach Mayer. Say, Zach, where's Ruli? Ruli's gone. Again. It's like deja vu. He's got like a family or something. I, I don't know. know. I love picking on him for it, though. <laughs> yeah, no, Ruli's taking care of his two beautiful daughters. Uh, well, his wife is working tonight. So, Zach, we're on our own. And we're, you know what we're not going to do? Which is a first for this fucking podcast. Talk about Star Trek? Are we going to not talk about Star Trek? Oh, well, I was going to send you Star Trek memes throughout the night, though. Is you that... definitely should. Yeah. Um, And also, I think in just a few more hours, we get another episode of Discovery. Oh, my goodness. How many How many of the season is that now? What are they, four or five? Uh, I think it's four. I want to yeah. say it's four. This okay. will be episode four. I still haven't watched season three. Ugh. Yeah, well, it's okay as long as you've watched you, as long as you've watched any of Lower Decks. Tom, I watched the first watched... episode. <laughs> I know. I hear Lower Decks is great. It's Ugh. fantastic. It's honestly the reaction to it. You either love it or you hate it, and I think you would love it. It is a lot of fun, and it's very self-aware. I know. I need to watch that show. Ugh. But Zach, that is not what we are here to talk about today. Yeah, well, what are we here to talk about today? So I got a couple of miscellaneous uh, like things I wanted to start with. Then I have a software engineering topic where I will actually unveil the quest number and name. Uh, and then I want to wrap with a trailer that I think just dropped like an hour ago that I haven't watched. Ooh, sounds so fun. So we've got, we got a smorgasbord. Maybe a charcuterie podcast of all things well, stuff. I mean, as long as you're not going to give me like a leak code challenge on the podcast, I think we're good. Oh, no, I use Hacker Rink. <laughs> <laughs> Better. Uh, so Ruli just posted in our chat, and we're not going to review it tonight, but Bebop was already canceled after one season on Netflix. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about Bebop when Ruli's yeah. back. I got uh, thoughts. You have thoughts. Yeah, uh, I am disappointed because, uh, yeah, we won't get into the details, but I, I enjoyed it. Honestly, I think one of its weakest things is just that it's going to be compared to the anime, which... You know, spoilers despite liking it, let's just be honest for a moment. The anime is better in basically every conceivable way. Yeah. So, but I think that's like its biggest sin is just it doesn't live up to its predecessor. But it's like, that didn't make it terrible. I mean, that had some flaws, but I enjoyed it. Like, we'll get into it later. I mean, if you have to squint to find its value, that says something in itself. Oh, oh you're hurting me. You're hurting me. It hurts. It hurts. Ah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Okay. Well, I wanted to touch, uh, that was one thing. I wanted to touch on two Vidya games real quick. Um, so I had ordered, the, have you heard of the, the game Return of the Oprah Din? I have. I don't think I've played it, or yeah. if I did, it was a while back. That was the, like, pixel mystery sort of thing? Yeah, it's not actually pixel, but it's black and white. Um, uh, okay. The grayscale, I should say. Grayscale. Uh, so yeah, low fidelity grayscale. It, oh, it's a really, really cool game. Um Trey and I played through that, and, and Steph, the three of us played through that uh, when I visited them like two years ago. We played through it over the course of a weekend. Wonderfully unique, amazing experience, unlike any other video game. Um, and then uh, I had ordered to like meet, to give it to, as a, a thank you gift slash Christmas to give to them. I had ordered from Limited Run, who are awesome, a physical edition of Oprah Din. Well, thanks to supply chain and blah, 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 I finally got it like almost two years after ordering it. Uh, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, wow. But it was such a great collector's edition. One of the big things in the in the game is that you have this notebook, and it has, like, all the crew manifest and pictures and stuff. The collector's edition printed out the entire fucking notebook. It's a full, like, 160-page book with everything from the game in it. 
it's really fucking cool. It is a amazingly cool collector's edition because it's not just, ah, we made you a statue or a bust. Like, no, this is the item from the game and it's a book. It was real cool. That is awesome. Yeah, a lot of those collector edition rewards really have to step up these days because the value proposition for them is real minimal. There are way better third-party options if you're just looking for a collectible to show that you're a fan of a particular uh, game or thing. Um, so that's that's awesome, especially for an indie title to, to put together something like that that's really, really cool. Yeah, I, I dug it. I just wanted to mention it on the podcast because I thought it was so fucking cool. So Return to the Oprah Din, cannot recommend it enough. Again, it is so unbelievably unique. Uh, I, I'm sure you can get it for dirt cheap on Steam. It's, it's on PC. It's on Switch. It's on basically every console. Maybe actually, maybe it's not on the other consoles. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's cheap. It's wonderful. It's only a handful of hours to play through. But again, it's 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 not exactly a narrative. It's, it's so unique and cool. Can't recommend it enough. But um, in the collector's edition, limited run, fan-fucking-tastic. There is definitely something to be said about games that do not overstay their welcome. That was something that we, I think, really crystallized in our collective consciousness with portal something that was Amen, like brother. four to eight hours and just a blast all the way through and there have been a lot of games that have tried to capture that since uh Oberden is one that stands out for sure at least in my mind as far as recent titles go but there are others out there that do more or less a good job of it um i see things that are like puzzle games with a story overlaid on top of them mm-hmm. uh, tend to do really well with that particular metric. So it's cool. It's good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, cool. The, the one other thing I wanted to mention is, have you heard of the game Loop Hero? Um, No, I don't think so. So this is another indie darling. I think it came out earlier this year for PC, and it just came out for Switch today. So I'm looking forward to playing it. It, it is uh, on the Steam reviews. It is quote overwhelmingly positive. It's it's a roguelike with like really old like think about instead of like old school console graphics like old school DOS style graphics, where uh, the world has been, I should have looked up the actual description like the world a, a evil lich has cast a spell on the whole world or a curse on the whole world, <clears throat> so the whole world is like fading away or is being forgotten, and you the hero can are the one guy who can remember the world and recreate it to stop it from going away. So it's this, it's kind of like an auto, an auto battler deck builder roguelike where Mm. you, you know, you go out of the town and you go on a loop, but you are the one putting down the obstacles and the resources on, on that loop that you traverse the walk. And so the harder things you put down, the better rewards you get, but it's kind of an auto battler. So if you're not giving your guy good gear, putting down things he can kill or setting it up with synergy, you're going to get your ass kicked. And you basically are doing loops, laps outside of the town on these these tracks that you build. Uh, and so if you die while you're out on the track, you lose a bunch of shit. Or you can stop when you get to the town to take your shit back. But then there's that like, oh man, but if I go around one more time, there's even more stuff. So I'm very much looking forward to trying it out. I don't yeah, actually I just, have a review yet. I just looked it up. Well, it's on sale first. Uh, it's $9. This was Wait. released in 20... Oh, it was released this year. Yeah, yeah. In March. I could have sworn that I had seen stuff for this like a while back. Was this an EA title? Uh, no, no, no. This was indie, I think. Well, yeah, no. I mean, early access. Sorry. Oh, oh, I know oh, that's oh yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. Right on. Right on. Well, yeah, no. It looks great. It's got fantastic reviews. That that game loop sounds pretty cool. As far as roguelikes go, yeah. Dig yeah, it. definitely. Well, cool. Uh, maybe someday we'll be back with a review, assuming I actually play it. I'm so bad about playing and watching things. Thank you, Pandemic, for melting my brain. Ugh, and I didn't even get COVID. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. Uh-huh. Okay, well, Zach, uh, let's get to the topic, shall we? The topic. The topic. The topic at hand. This, dear listener, is Quest 147. What is your UX development workflow? Oh, baby, we get nerdy. Oh, oh, baby. Yep. Oh, baby. Uh. So th- this is something where, look, software development as a whole is hard, right? And what's interesting for, for me working in the video games industry is uh, developing and designing fun is even harder. How do you, like, you can schedule types of work. You can find things that are intuitive and workflows. How do you schedule fun? I want it to be about two weeks worth of fun 
or, oh, that thing we're going to invent six months from now it may or may not be more or less fun than the thing we invented, you know, now. Fun is really hard. So we, we have a difficult time with this. And iterating is key in game development. Uh, it, developing things is key. But, again, like scheduling that and how do you take features to completion is is a challenge. Because you don't want to overcommit, but you don't want to undercommit, but you think you have something. It's a real pain in the ass. So... That's kind of the angle I'm coming from here. We're trying to refine our UX and UI workflows uh, to make them a little more streamlined. And I wanted to get feedback from you uh, on what you guys do when it's time to build uh, UIs or features. Are you doing specs? Are you doing wireframes? Are you doing gray boxing? Um, yeah, then I, I want to go back and forth on some of the, the philosophies I've developed, you know, from, from my my time uh, in the industry and, and and compare and contrast those with yours. See, maybe if, if I and dear listener can learn something tonight. Indeed, should be fun. Yeah, so what's, what's your basic flow? Well, it's important, I think, to recognize that my flow has changed and evolved, not just with the technology and my own experience, but also based a lot around the organization that I'm applying that workflow to. And to me, I think the biggest factor that affects how we approach just organizing around problems is simply resourcing. It is a vastly different experience to have a, you know, end-to-end conception to implementation to delivery workflow in a large organization with a lot of resources versus a small startup or a mid-sized organization. And that that definitely has an effect. And you could think of it like the size of your fish tank. And if you are a goldfish in that fish tank, you will grow to the size of your environment. And if you have a small fish tank, your processes are going to be small and light and quick and agile and all that good stuff. And if you're in a larger organization, you will grow bigger and you will get slower, but ultimately you will survive longer. So there's trade-offs. Well, let's let's define size here because there's a bunch of different ways to take that, right? Is it the size of the team? Is it the number of disciplines, whether or not you have dedicated UX people, uh, design people, UI people? Is it the scope or scale of the project? What are the different is it all of them? I mean, usually those kind of grow together. But <laughs> yeah. what are the what's the the facets that you are dealing with? Uh, I mean, you can think of it as just resources you have available, and those resources could be any of the things that you described. Whether it's team members to share the load of the tasks that you're breaking down to try and do, whether it's project managers to help plan stuff, designers dedicated or not, um, QA, all of the things that go into modern DevOps. The more hands that you have on different aspects of your end-to-end pipeline, the more you can typically do. Uh, even if you just have a couple of guys automating stuff as a full-time job, that's way better than if you have to go through and do all of that yourself. It means that you get to spend your time focusing on the problem areas that you either want, I hope it's in most cases, want to work on or should be working on. Um, so yeah, resources are the things that affect how you work and how you solve problems. If you have fewer of them, then you solve problems a different way than if you have way too many. And both extremes have their own challenges and finding a sweet spot where you've got just enough of the right people with the right skill sets working on a problem end to end, uh, that's, that's hard to come up with. And almost <laughs> nobody gets it right 100% of the time. Well, I think that's software development. I don't think anyone gets anything right 100% of the time. If you, <laughs> yeah. if you are, who, who the fuck are you and how much do I need to pay you? Well, it's not even just that you don't get it right 100% of the time. It's that you almost never do. Yeah, true. Uh, Iteration. Let's let's set expectations here. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're you're always going to have challenges, things that you wish were going differently, things that you wish you had or you wish you didn't have to deal with. Um, no workflow is ever going to be perfect, uh, or even really close to what you might think of as perfect. And the best that you can do in most cases is just cope. (laughs) That sounds, that sounds trite and mean, but honestly, just cope, get good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, so, um, when I started at, well, I mean, you have more experience at match than I did. You can maybe talk about that. You know, before that I was at a startup dealing with, you know, four of us, there really wasn't 
there really wasn't a flow between who's the designer, the UX guy, the whatever. It was everybody. Um, but then when I started at Blizzard, I was working on a team that had about uh, – well, our department was bigger, but our particular team was like less than 15. And we had two UX people, one designer, and then a whole bunch of engineers. So there was a, a minimal, but I learned a lot from, from that uh, you know, development workflow. And then over the years at Blizzard, I bounced around where I've had mostly zero uh, resources for UX, UI. And then now I'm on a much larger team and our ratio of engineer to like UI, UX is probably way less than ideal. Um, we're talking like 20 to 1. <laughs> it's not great. Um, yeah. So what are, what are the size teams and the numbers you're used to working with? Um, so typically I will work with a squad of about four engineers on just UX um these days and these days being like uh the last five years or so and that ratio works out to be maybe one to two maybe we have twice as many application engineers and you'll usually have a designer per project design teams like to manage themselves uh jira doesn't typically fit the constraints that they work under uh or imposes more than they should have so their their workflow is not entirely opaque to me but it is very different from what you think of as a software engineering like project management style workflow uh they don't typically have tickets even if they have deliverables they work on deadlines more than anything else um and their time is spent it, well it, it's just down to how do you manage creative people right not that software engineering is not a creative endeavor it definitely is mm -hmm. but there are way fewer metrics that you can track with visual design than there are for software delivery so yeah that yeah, aside very similar to scheduling fun right how many, exactly. how many days is going to take you to make it look good yeah and how many how many iterations are you going to have to go to until you get all the approvals that you want how many times yeah. is uh you know are you going to get near the end of the process and some executive or some project manager is going to say no i don't like this this is weird uh go back and try again um you can mitigate that i think uh and this is where i think agile really shines is when you're doing that kind of creative design work initially uh, doing the proof of concepts, doing those initial wireframes, doing the gray boxing, and the uh, you know increasing fidelity over time. If you have short cycles when you're producing and getting feedback, the shorter the better. Then you have way more opportunities to course correct early than you would if you just went through and presented high fidelity wireframes or a complete product at the end. Um, so at least there, there are problems with agile as a philosophy you just and, literally stated the, the agile manifesto yeah there are problems with agile as a as a project management philosophy definitely but at least for that part if you're considering your designers as uh agents or you know autonomous agents that are producing things for you not necessarily just employees doing work then you can apply Agile pretty well, at least in the spiritual sense, if not the you know ritual sense. Uh, that tends to work pretty well. And I think it applies for UI engineering in general as well. Uh, if you're working closely with your designers, if you're doing those feedback sessions, then you should be you know, sort of trying to track towards an end goal in parallel with design you're not necessarily taking a waterfall approach of waiting for your final highest fidelity mm -hmm. designs to come out to start implementing against you're looking at the building blocks uh in that low res world that might just be you know what's the f the what's the basic layout of the ui that you're trying to deliver what are the principal components what are the most important aspects that you're going to need to have and that might be things like you know, navigation or a menu system. It might be the ability to show data in tables or charts. Uh, you might want to have some kind of, you know, cool thing like a uh, rotating visualization thing. Uh, doing the legwork while design is iterating to produce the fundamentals for how to deliver on their ultimate vision, whatever it ends up being, 
uh, is still worthwhile and should be done at the same time the design is working. So, yeah, there's lots of stuff that you can do. Uh, oh, there, but there's so, waiting there's so many... until the end is. Oh yeah, no, wait, not... don't wait to the end. That's the whole agile thing. There, yeah. there are so many things to break down there that are they're interesting conversation topics. Um, let's uh, before we get into the, the fidelity of the, the wireframes and details uh, and and style guides. I think these are all things to discuss. Let's pop the stack a little bit. And you talked about you know uh, who's working on what and when. With the people when you work with UI UX, are is everybody working on the same cycles in terms of sprints? Are UI UX just completely separate from that and don't have cycles? Are you staggered? What's the process you've been used to using or have used? So we, um, and again, this is largely organizational dependent, and I'm going to speak to my most recent org mostly um, because I think they do it pretty well and because they express a tendency to conform to similar trends that I've seen in other places. They're just a good reference model. Um, we have several squads, and they typically are between four and maybe 10 at the most people uh, working on any particular, working in any particular direction. They might not all be working on the exact same thing, but their work is related enough that it makes sense to lump them together. For UX, our uh, UI engineers are usually in groups of two to four, and their focus is on one particular project or product. The you uh, the design org is, like I said, their own kind of thing. <laughs> we typically treat them kind of as vendors for us. Uh, we tell them, hey, here's the product that we think we want to build. We'll have meetings kind of describing it and getting the uh, sort of brain dump into their their minds and then have really quick like weekly in some cases where it's really early, almost daily, uh, just like 15, 20 minute sessions with them to make sure that we're all you know, on the same page as they go through the process of coming up with an experience. And then we have the, um, call it the, the service engineering orgs, the people that are powering the user experience that we're trying to deliver also need to be, you know, in the loop as we're coming up with and developing the whole experience. Because if we don't have the data to support what we want to do, then none of it matters. So they're important and they work in pretty close to the same breakdown as UI engineers. They'll have squads that are four to maybe 10 people. And depending on the nature of the problem and what they have to do to support what we want to ultimately deliver, those squad sizes may vary, or they may have more than one squad working on the same like product. So the breakdown tends to be pretty flat. We have about as many people working in any particular area as any other area usually and where it varies are the special cases if we find a need we fill a need so that's uh that's kind of the topography yeah no, so that, that makes sense that they are separate teams and if they live outside the org they can be used by multiple lives i've seen that done in other departments mm -hmm. um the you know they're on their own deadlines and schedules uh we, we're very even though we're one team and one org we're very similar to that where they're they're not ux ui doesn't have sprints the way the engineers do i will mm -hmm. say that in one of my past positions I worked with a team where we all did two-week sprints, but they were staggered by one week. So UX was done with their wireframes, which again, we'll get into, um, two weeks before we started development. And then the designer was supposed to be done one week before we started development. And then we, the engineers would pick it up and, and go. And actually, then QA was staggered by one week as well. <coughs> so we had this little mini, mini staggering waterfall-ish flow that I think mm -hmm. actually really worked quite well for us. Um, yeah. And, yeah I liked, and I liked UX and UI having deadlines that, that matched up with us. I find when you don't, like anything, when there's no schedule, stuff finds a way to slip through the cracks. So I, I liked having hard deadlines. I really appreciate that. It was the same thing with deliverables on those deadlines. No, I want the wireframes. No, I want the style guide. No, I want this here. And it was very, it could be demoed. It could be just like, you know, literally, I want that file on the file share. If it's not there, you didn't finish your work. I liked those those concrete deliverables a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, when we have a project, and we're all typically on the same sprint schedule, uh, we don't like stagger when sprints start or end. Uh, but the 
specifics of how that work gets done are staggered a little bit. So we have uh, two primary review processes that we go through. Uh, we have the uh, engineering service review, which takes the uh, specifications that engineers are trying to develop for their service APIs, for their backend implementation, uh, all of the fun like YAML or not YAML. What's the what's the word I'm looking for for like the the block diagrams for services? Um, uh, oh, U UML. UML. That's it. <laughs> close. So, so we'll take close. yeah. So we'll take we'll take the the diagrams for how we believe the service is going to be built. We'll take the roughed out like just written down uh, spec for what we think the contracts will start to look like. Uh, that just includes what kind of endpoints are we going to need? What kind of data are we going to need to deliver? What is it going to have to include? And the ultimate implementation may vary or be different from what that initial conception is as we go and explore the problem space. But that initial bit to make sure that we're not doing something stupid, right? And UX has a similar process. Uh, it's the UX review board where we take these initial pretty low fidelity sort of wireframes and go through a walkthrough of what we think the feature is going to be or the product is going to be and that's stuff like what are the user workflows uh what is the kind of data that we're presenting and roughly how like what's the metaphor um not getting into the you know real depth of how does the um you know what what's the color matching or the uh, aspect ratio or the specific verbiage that we're going to use in the experience. We're just getting the rough sense of here's how we want to block this out. Um, that goes through, like I said, a peer review process just like the service does. And we have these in kind of staggered schedules. Um, it's different for every product and the specifics are sometimes dictated by an external deadline. Ultimately, we have to deliver something that's complete. Uh, so we'll have like a limited availability or a general availability date that we're targeting. Mm -hmm. um, and that end date, that ultimate end date, can sort of backtrack, dictate when reviews need to happen by. So you get those little mini deadlines scattered throughout the, the course of the project. Um, so yeah, we'll typically have a... Um, a uh, service review before we have uh, our first UX review. So we'll make sure that we have the outlines of the contract that we're going to be working with. Requirements! Yeah, it's it's a more technical version of the initial product, product requirement doc. Somebody in a project manager role or a product role will come up with the rough outlines for what it is that we're doing and why. And then the service engineers will take that and say, okay, this is the data that we need to support that, we think. Uh, we'll review it, make changes, and UX, uh, the design team will take those uh, reviews out of the engineering team and say, okay, well, based on what kind of data we have available, this is the kind of experience we can present. And if there's a need to go back and forth and change stuff, or we need more data from the service team, or we're not finding a use for some of the data they're, they're providing, then we have a couple of checkpoints where we can get those uh, those things captured. After yeah. that, there's another round of reviews that are much more final. Um, we'll have a uh, service review for the finalized spec for the service that is being you know changed or created. Uh, sometimes that covers multiple services if it's a, a big project, but we'll do the same thing for the UI work where we get into the high fidelity stuff and design has come up with here's what we think this is going to look like when it is built. And all of these are, well, the service one is much more concrete because we have an artifact that is produced uh, that both the UX engineering team and the design team use to actually build the experience. Um, all of our APIs conform to that um, uh, open API spec. So we get the thing so that we can build against the thing. We have that solid contract. So even while the service is in development, we still have the ability to generate mocks and know what our service calls are going to look like and you know call 
we we can do everything that we need to do in parallel with the service team and we can integrate really easily at the end um so yeah all the the high fidelity stuff and the final service reviews happen um you know right around the time that we're about ready to implement and through all or right around the time that we're about ready to integrate and throughout all of this process while all of this stuff is sort of coming together we're doing the work we're building towards the experience and making changes and finding issues uh you know there's often the case where something that design has come up with uh just can't be reconciled with what the backend services can deliver and so we have to change things and we have to adapt um it's kind of cool to see because it is a very iterative process and like i said i'm using my current org kind of as the the baseline or kind of as a stand-in example for a bunch of other orgs that i've been in and i've seen this process play out to one degree or another sometimes better sometimes worse the places where it's harder are the places where there are fewer resources though i want to just reiterate that your resourcing matters I'm in a place now where I have all of the resources that I could want for a given project. You know, if there is a deadline that we have to hit, then there's a really great clear argument to be made for bringing more people in if we need them. Or, you know, if it's something that we can handle pretty quickly, then we can release those resources back into the larger organizational pool. But um, when you are really resource constrained, a lot of those check-ins, those uh, targets, those dates and deadlines, they're not almost necessarily going to push because people are going to be working on more than one thing at a time, and especially in design where it's uh, an under-resourced org almost universally. Your designers are going to be moving in a bunch of directions at the same time for products that you don't necessarily even know about. And respecting that is hard for an organization to really come to terms with it i think yeah i I think you're talking about a very large organization here again like more embedded teams i think face less of these problems but even then when i've been on teams there's multiple let's just use the word projects and flights you have the the more micro problem there um Mm -hmm. and scheduling is always a bitch yeah well even smaller teams if you have design that is tasked with creating a lot of experiences uh, and coming up with ideas for how to, um, you know, how, how, how products vision should be presented. Uh, they're often going to be running way, way, way ahead of the implementation teams if there are multiple teams. And if you even have a mid-sized org where you have a few different threads in flight at the same time, your designers are probably going to be supporting all of them simultaneously. And that's just not going to be possible if to do for your engineering teams. Your engineers can only really do one thing at a time. Ideally, they get to do that one thing at a time from inception to completion. But if you are in an org that has to be really, really agile, and they have to context switch a lot because things come up and business needs are business needs, and you only have so much time in a given week, um, your context switching is going to be made at a much higher frequency than you do than you would in larger teams and that context switching has a cost as with everything hello engineering yeah oh i think that's the only reason i'm good at my job is because i can more so than most engineers one of my skills is the ability to handle context switching i think a lot of people i know who are fantastic engineers uh, many better stronger than i man they don't they don't like that context switching i'm like yep that's why i'm a lead (laughs) (laughs) yeah for sure for sure but i mean just like even uh, on an individual level i think it's it's much more reasonable to cope with on an organizational level that context switch is a lot harder you have a lot more mass and a lot more inertia if you're working in one direction for a while and then suddenly have to change tacks Getting yep. people to drop what they're doing, to spin down on one project and spin up on another, is way slower when you have, you know, eight, ten engineers on a team versus just you yourself. 
Oh, I love it when it's me, myself, and it's going to make the decisions. God, there's no meetings. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Like, a team of one has a very different workflow than a team of, you know, even four, right? Yeah. Uh, if you have the... Uh, and, and people... I don't respect the idea of full-stack engineering anymore. Oh, we disagree. To an extent. I mean, yeah, it's good to be multifunctional and to have an idea of what's going on, but I think specialization is important. Um, specialization is important. The The thing that I I cannot stand, and it's, you know, standard rule on our team, is that we have no walled gardens. Uh, if you ever say, oh, that's not my problem, I'm going to get very bothered by that. Like, no, I can't fix it because someone else, like, I get it, I get it, you're not a client engineer, you're a server engineer, or vice versa. Like... I get that. I don't expect you to be able to jump from one side to the other, but we are mm -hmm. one team. We live and die together. And if there's an opportunity for you to fix a null exception, you know, with an if statement, well, I don't give a fuck which team you're on. You know how to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so no, no walled gardens. No, absolutely. And I don't disagree with that. The thing that I have a much harder time reconciling is this idea that everybody should be able to do everything, and so that you should have somebody who is a an operating system guy be just as good at figuring out how to update an operating system in a remote data center as you should. It should be just as good at his specialty as he should be at automating delivery or figuring out kubernetes or understanding how to center a div <laughs> i don't think yeah. that's reasonable no I no think it's those not. are separate no, skills and i think that about qa in particular and qa is a good one that i i i have had a mixed relationship with over the entire course of my career and i've changed positions on what i think the work of qa should be um, these days I take a much more laissez-faire approach generally, just like philosophically, even if it's, you know, oppositionally, uh, relevant to the organization that I happen to be attached to. But I think QA is, a, is a discrete skill set. Oh, a hundred percent. QA, estets. Yeah. Um, like I, I'm QA a, engineering yeah. is not to be taken as lesser than any other software engineering that we do. And it shouldn't be the expectation that everybody who produces software is also a QA engineer. Like, being able to write unit tests, sure. Yeah, everybody should be able to understand what a unit test is and how to create testable code. Figuring out how to run through all of the other testing scenarios that you might want for a given project, whether those are integration tests or um, functional tests or uh, what's... There's, Another one that's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, integration oh, behavioral. system, stress, behavioral tests, soak, behavior. Oh, there you go. Uh, all of that kind of testing requires you to be pretty well immersed in those tools, techniques, and technologies, and they are different than what you do day to day if you're just you know regular software building. Um, yeah, I, I think there's absolutely a, a, a case and a need to treat. QA as a discrete discipline in software engineering and the fact that a lot of companies don't and take this full stack approach idea it's it's an extremist position to me now mm -hmm. that everybody should be able to produce a feature and fully test that feature with all of the kinds of testing that we want to yeah. do no 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 no, no automation that's nuts well and there's a specialization in again qa and and estet with just understanding the integrations and creating frameworks and integrations to to do that level of testing writing a unit test is the the you know relatively speaking the easy part it's controlled mm -hmm. when you get into integrations or system level testing there's a billion things to worry about there that, that any given engineer is and yeah to sure. also to clarify with the the full stack like full emphasis on that word that's a very rare skill most people are never going to have that um, and even those that do are not going to be experts in every element of it, like myself. But I do feel there's a a spectrum. And when you're going all the way from reliability to server to tools to client to UI, there's like the spectrum. And I kind of expect people to be able to interact with the the sides of the spectrum that are adjacent to them. Not be experts, oh, yeah. but interact. Yeah, absolutely. Like you should not be isolated and doing work in a bubble. But you also shouldn't be expected to be good at everything. 
Um, yeah, no, I think we're we're mostly same page there. Uh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit. Of, let, let's end or wrap up. This is a, a topic we could sit on for literally pro hours. Uh, how do you keep the feedback and iteration cycles tight? Because one thing, and I've been telling the story to everyone at my job recently, that our UX guy used to do was he would make his low fidelity uh, gray boxed wireframes, right? They didn't look like the styles. They didn't have fancy things, but he'd make those. He'd print them out. He'd tape them on the walls and put pens next to them. And the engineers would just destroy these things. They would just write a million notes. What about this? What about that? That doesn't work. How's this going to align? Blah, 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 blah. And then he'd take them down and he'd go and rework and then iteration two, print them out, put them on the walls, and we would tear them apart again. And it created this really tight feedback cycle where we didn't have to wait weeks. We didn't have to schedule meetings. It was just when you're walking through the hall, take a look at it. And we made so much progress in that. I mean, yes, you're always going to miss things and you want to push it back through the cycle as quick as you can. But it was such an amazing start. And then we had this document, this, you know, effectively uh, this holy grail where it was like, hey, when design puts something together, if it doesn't, if it alters anything remotely functionally from what's in the UX, the wireframe, it would be like, no, that's different. Like these don't talk about expanding. These don't talk about being movable. These don't talk about being, you know, on the left side versus the right side. Like, no, it must functionally be identical to the wireframes. And the same thing I have with engineers. If, if we didn't add a feature, like, no, it's, it's in the wireframes. That says it needs to be scrollable. That says it needs to be dynamic. It says it needs to be an accordion. Um, and it just put this, it was a great tight feedback loop on the UX. And then the wireframes were gospel. They were what we just, every discipline then had to follow. And you could change, they're were, they were mutable, but you know, you get the UX guy to make the change and, and move it through the uh, the the process. So um, yeah, what what is your experience with doing stuff like that? So I love the crazy wall, the storyboarding the physical documents put up on like a whiteboard or the uh, just the wall in the hallway. Uh, and I've worked in, in places that did that less the last couple years for reasons, but <laughs> um, even, even without, can't imagine the, what you're referring to. Yeah. Even without the physicality, one of the tools that I've come to really, really enjoy uh, playing with is Figma. If you haven't seen it, definitely go look it up. Um, but it's it's basically the wall just digitized and you can annotate it and you can mutate it and you can make uh, you know comments on things and ask questions and it's a living document uh, the cool part about that is that it's digital so it's easy to like share your screen in a meeting and go through it with people um, and so what we'll do with that is kind of the same thing. Uh, design will produce a document like that, and it'll usually start with the low fidelity stuff, the blocking, the uh, the gray boxing, and all that good stuff. And then we'll go through and review it, and we'll make comments and suggestions and questions. And uh, typically, we'll do that, you know, together in a meeting, and you know, take the hour for everybody to really dive into it and hear other people's feedback. It tends to inspire more questions and as that process evolves we'll keep having those sessions and keep going through it together um, it is always possible that you can take a look at that doc in your own time and go back and if something's really nagging at you, you just you know make a question fire off a slack message and say hey I thought this was weird and I made a comment just letting you know but you don't have the same kind of like uh, you don't have the, the water cooler sort of environment that you do in a physical office space, right? So that happens a lot less than I think it would if you were all physically present. The group sessions ameliorate that a little bit, um, and I think we still end up with good stuff overall. But I do wonder if we're missing something by just not having the thing physically like present in our space these days i mean i i think that collab there's amazing collaboration tools online and we are so much better than we used to be and it's wonderful i and, and i am biased because i'm an extrovert i still feel there is a element where in person makes a world of difference and tangible again pieces of paper on the wall make a difference not that we can't or won't be productive remotely but i still am a believer in in person to some extent i'm not trying to piss on you know remote working of the sort uh, again, probably biased from being an extrovert. 
<laughs> yeah. Now I've uh, I, I've continually been impressed with how effective the teams that I've been working with have been able to be without any of that physicality. Like I thought it was going to be a major hindrance, and like when we started talking about workflow, I was thinking like, oh well, you know, this is the number of screens that I have, and this is the tools that I use, and it's for me at least um, drastically shrunk over the last couple of years. The just number more homogenous of... toolset or what? No, well, it's more that like I have my work laptop, and I kind of just use my laptop screen. <laughs> and that's it. Like that's that's my tool. That's where my work lives. And I've gotten really really comfortable with just having Wait, that. Wait, the files are in the computer? Yeah. Uh, you know, on on just the one little mobile screen. That's been weirdly comfy for me. And um yeah, we've we've sort of coalesced around we love VS Code and we love Figma and we uh like Confluence when it's good. Uh, we also have this really cool internal uh, video sharing site. So when we're in meetings and we're recording Zoom sessions, or if we're doing like little offline demos, it's really easy to just you know record a quick video and share it on this uh, shared video sharing tool. Um, makes documentation a lot more fun, personally. But yeah, all, all <laughs> documentation and fun. Those aren't words I usually hear going together. Well, it's like you get this kind of stream of consciousness where you're not thinking about how are my bullets formatted or is this table wide enough to convey the ideas that I want to get across. It's more here's what I'm physically looking at. Here's the problem itself, uh, and then you know recording that and sending that to somebody. And it's like here's here's two minutes of me working through this, and what do you think? You know. I think nothing like the wiki of here's a document that you have to read in maybe not your native language and good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the, the opportunities for misinterpretation are a lot less when you have uh, the ability to like back up your thoughts that way. And video does that really well. (laughs) The video backs up your thoughts. Oh, phrasing. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, the, uh, I, I there are aspects of like in person work that I do miss. One of the things that I always liked was um you know, you get you get into a workflow or you get into a problem that you're solving and then you get the Slack message or somebody just randomly calls you, which never do that. Never just randomly start. A yeah, Zoom we call we put the ban on that call. about two months in. Never do that. Um but I did not ever mind and in fact really really preferred when somebody who had a question for me would physically walk up to my cube and you know say hey i got a question for you and i could say cool give me half a second to finish the line that i'm typing and then answer that question have that conversation and almost immediately get back to what i was doing with very little of that flow interruption i don't know what it is about physically reading stuff or having to you know, switch tabs uh, in what I'm doing to answer a call that is just so much more disruptive than having somebody just tap me on the shoulder. And I'm almost positive that I'm an anomaly in that preference. Like, I, I have to believe that people don't like the physical interruption as much as I do. Uh, but I do miss that. I don't know. I mean, I... in an office. I do as well but again i just i'm an extrovert so i just i you know curb my my enthusiasm there well okay uh zach thanks for for talking super nerd once again um dear listener i hope that was useful uh again we could probably talk about this another two hours but i wanted to end the podcast on a trailer that just released a few minutes ago so zach i'm pasting this in Ooh, a few minutes ago a few hours ago fun trailer time what do we got jesus that's loud hang on all right I got it. Oh my god. Oh my god. All right, Zach, what are tell your listener what we're watching? Oh my god, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Official trailer from Paramount Pictures. I can't believe we're getting a sequel. I know. All right, count them down in three, two, one, play. 
I'm not super surprised that we're getting a sequel. The first one did really well. It did well financially, which was, I mean, surprising. And it was, like, it was a good movie. It was fun. It was fun. It was fun. Sonic, I love that you want to help make a difference. And they had the tail stinger yeah. at the end. Yep. Is, is James Marsden even in this one? Uh, you know, I have no idea. I know Jim Carrey's back, and that's what I care about. Oh, there's James Marsden. You're still just a kid. Trust me, there will come a moment when your powers will be needed. But you don't choose that moment. That moment chooses you. I just got goosebumps. Wait a second, did you steal that from Oprah? <laughs> did you steal that from Oprah? That's not a dated reference at all. Oh my god, bald Robotnik, I'm so into it. Since I've been gone, I've discovered the source of ultimate power. Chaos Emerald! It's been on my vision board for years. Jim Carrey is so good! Why does his goggles not have a strap? Oh, hush. It's Tails! Okay, this is what we're gonna do. Step one, light taunting. Step two, I have no idea. <laughs> oh man, you and Trey are gonna get that plane in Flight Simulator, aren't you? 100%. <laughs> this looks like it has a lot more action and, and animation than the first movie. Face it, you're never going to get my power. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Who is that? Knuckles? Knuckles! <gasps> Idris oh, Elba as Knuckles. Knuckles. I look like I need your power. <laughs> Where are my manners? Sonic, meet Knuckles. Yes! Stoked! Yep. Yep, looks fun. Looks yep. fun. I'm into it. I'm, I'm very, very into it. Yep. I love it so much already. Yep. I'm into it. Oh. Let's hope it doesn't get canceled like Bebop. Oof. Oof. I can't believe I'm hyped for a Sonic movie. It's so, oh, God, so embarrassingly dumb. Yeah, well, you know. You know. All right, dear listener, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, yeah, I, I'm still working next week, so I'll be here. Hopefully, we'll be back next week, and maybe we'll get a early. Yeah, that'd be yeah. ideal. Yeah, maybe we'll do a Bebop review, assuming he's... You finished it, right? I did. Yeah, I, we both finished it. We'll see if it really has. Um, okay, maybe we'll be back. Zach, thanks again. You're welcome. All right, and until next time, dear listener, QQ! QQ QQ. QQ2, the Sonic review for you. <laughs> Something like that. Hey, dear listener, thank you so very much for joining us. Please always remember that all views and opinions expressed on the podcast are representative solely of the person expressing them. Not of their friends and family, not of their co-hosts or co-workers, and certainly not of their employers, past, present, or future. Again, thank you for joining us, and thank you for respecting our individuality. You played two hours to die like this?